Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk Splits. The McDonald brothers are back, as you saw from the description. Stephen and Jeff McDonald, the greatest sibling duo in punk rock history, are here again, and it is a monster of an episode. Uh, but before that, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, hit me up at turnitapunkpodcast at, uh, G- Turn at, at gmail.com. And uh, shout out to Tristan, my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Damien. The band I play in Fucked Up, we got a new LP coming out next week called One Day. It's on Merge Records, home of Stephen and Jeff McDonald and Red Cross. So shout out to Merge, too, for helping me set up this episode. Pre-order One Day now. Check it out when it comes out. I'm very excited about this record. I hope you enjoy it. And if not, uh, I'm sure you'll let me know (laughs) if you want. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, returning are the incomparable McDonald brothers. You may know them from Red Cross. Steven, of course, plays in a bunch of other projects. Jeff plays in a bunch of other projects. We talk about some of these other things they've done over the years. And these are two of the most talented people to emerge in punk rock and truly the original hardcore kids getting into this back in 78 and just kind of living their lives in it, coming up to, well, past 40 years now as a band. And they are continuing to put out amazing records. You can find out more about all the reissues that have come out. Like they have never put out anything less than a classic when it comes to LPs. And there are very few bands that can say that. And as you hear, spoiler, they're, they're working on a new one right now. So check out mergerecords.com and like order neurotica, like face anything, everything by this band is worth checking out. I promise you, you will not be let down. Uh, you hear, if you listen to last week's episode with Bobby from 16, we talk about how this is one of the greatest bands of all time. Anyway, I don't need to sell you on Red Cross. I haven't done one of these in a while, but this will be a two episode week because coming up later on this week, the Linda Lindas are on the show. And this is a very fun conversation with all of them. Very brief conversation. Uh, but a very fun conversation. And we talk about their punk lineage because it goes deep. And once again, another group of, of siblings and family members and, and one and a friend that have emerged from Los Angeles that are driving this music for another generation of kids. So and anyway, we'll hear more on that, on that episode. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Here are the gods, Stephen and Jeff Mc... Oh, <laughs> you'll hear it in a second. Remember to check out Stephen and Jeff's first appearance on the podcast, and also check out Stephen's first solo appearance on the podcast, which to this day remains probably the single episode of Turn Out of Punk you have to hear. This one too. Keep keep listening to this one, but check out. It's like a trilogy, and hopefully there'll be more. You know, hopefully it'll be like uh, the Decalogue. All right, that's it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Stephen and Jeff McDonald on Turned Out a Punk. Jeff and Stephen, welcome back to the show. Oh, uh, thank you for having us back. Well, I was just telling you guys off air, I think your last appearance on the show is one of my favorite episodes of all time, but I think that will go down as show producer, my brother, Tristan Abraham's favorite episode ever as well, because like I was saying, 
there's a strong relatability in your guys' relationship, I think, for all siblings that are uh, involved in punk. What's the age gap between you and Tristan? Three years. Two really? Yeah, three years. So we are, uh, or two two years and whatever months, but close to three, close enough to three years. We call it three years. Well, we're close to four. Yeah, I, I think four. I think that's even like that's why I'm so surprised, Jeff, that you were so inclusive with him because now witnessing the way my kids interact with each other and that they have a closer age group gap than to you guys that right. distance between the 13 year old and the 10 year old is ginormous right now <laughs> well yeah. you know i mean i just i think i was always looking for like the next angle into show business so like having like <laughs> Eleven showed some early talent on bass. It was, um, you know, it was an obvious choice. The bass guy grew up with Kim Fowley yeah. as an older brother. <laughs> <laughs> you knew a family act. That's the way to go. You're looking at the Jacksons. You're looking at the Cassidys, and I mean, I would. I grew up with that stuff. I mean, the Osmonds. You know, they were the first little kids I ever saw. And I mean, they we they um, we never got to see the Castles. I'm a little bit older for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Osmonds. And then when Jimmy hit the stage, it was like about the same age as Steve, and they were both like cherubic, high energy performers. So you know. yeah, right. So I love that idea of like Jeff watching the Osmonds on TV, for instance, and then him going back and forth looking at Jimmy Osmond, then looking at me, then looking at Jimmy Osmond, and getting these ideas <laughs> in his head like a twelve-year-old Jeff McDonald. Stephen actually showed early, you know, bass talent. He showed early musical talent that I didn't necessarily have on an instrument yet. So it was a it was a no-brainer. So it's definitely it's true older brother fashion. You just have your younger brother around when you need him. Like if they got money or they got talent, something something yeah, you yeah. need. Yeah, it was basically like, you know, like the organ grinder and the trained monkey on the, the leash. That was that was our routine early on. Well, I had no way to, of knowing if I had any um, musical talent yet. Steven had already joined the school orchestra, so he yeah. did show promise on the bass. Now you, now why did you never join the school orchestra? Because they didn't, traditionally, they didn't have guitar. And but, they but had the only electric clarinet or something. Oh, like, not interesting. You were <laughs> yeah, how could you say that? Come on, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I have regrets now, but I mean, then no, not interested. I, what I really wanted was to be a drummer. Mm. I all I thought about was drums. I stared at drums in the Sears catalog each holiday season, but that wasn't going to happen. So why was that? You knew that was out because the parents. We lived in a small house. They're not. They weren't going to deal with someone playing drums. It was already going to be like yeah. And our dad already kind of had, um, you know, it was a small house with a garage, but his his sort of like. Uh, you know, his man den was in the garage. Yeah, he so, had motorcycles. So we, we, we weren't, yeah, he had motorcycles that he would tinker on all night long. And we, we weren't going to be able to invade that space. So a drum, a drummer would have to set up in the house. And so, yeah, I understand why they didn't work out. But well, that, it made sense. I my And I did realize at some point, I think when um, I learned how to play a couple of Cat Stevens songs on, on acoustic guitar, I realized it was probably a better prospect to be front with a guitar than it was to be what power do drummers have i mean once you're in a band people in bands know drummers have huge power because um good drummers are really hard to find yeah absolutely so, and, um but as far as like um you know self-promotion drummers weren't being a drummer wasn't a prospect 
even when the drummer is the most talented person in the band, like look at the monkeys, you know, like it, it, it's, it went you're behind that drum kit, you know, Phil Collins realized eventually you got to break out from behind the kit and Dave Grohl right. too. Right. Right. I, yes. I wasn't even to the point where I, I realized I had to break out from behind the, the kit. Yeah. Not behind the but kit. now why, but growing up as a Beatle fanatic, what, why did the drum scrap? Like what, 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 what band, I just inspired you to want to be. I, I just drums. loved playing drums. I remember we used to always set up drum, the, like the pots and pans, and do all that stuff. It was just kind of fun because I think maybe um, more of a natural drummer, and it was kind of easier. Even though I never got to realize that. Yeah, I guess you know, like many years later, like you know, playing the bongos on your lap, like anybody can has has everybody has that instrument. Yeah. I mean, I have a full drum set now, and I do play drums, but not professionally. <laughs> and I find when I bring my kids around the band, the first thing they want to do is go over and mess with the drum kit. Like, I think it's just so natural for us to just want to make that beat. And drummers are always really um, particular about anyone touching their drum set more than any other musicians. Most people don't care if you touch their guitars or whatever. Drummer always gets uptight if you want to have a tap, as they said. Yes. Like, you know, it's like, they just not. And I remember my friend, um, Alan Stewart's he later joined he was later a member of the LA's Wasted Youth but oh yes pulled together and he always had a drum set and it was always like oh let me play the drum and he'd like let you play for like three minutes and then that's it so there's like <laughs> Alan's gonna hear this there's say, there's, there's, there's <laughs> Wait, are you carrying around resentment about no, no it was probably <laughs> because I was forced to go another direction but um but yeah I just noticed that drummers we're always uptight. Remember, like we would have well because it's symbols. Symbols are valuable yeah. and they're hard to come by. And that's the other reason why kids get behind the kid. I think about it. I would guess now that you know, you're a little person, you got you sort of like the bottom of the hierarchy, and and you know who gets to say what, or who gets to like interrupt who, and you can just get behind that kid and hit those symbols, and no one can say anything. Mm. It's going to be the loudest thing in the room. Makes a lot of sense, a little kid. That, that would be that. hilarious, though. Like seeing a band where 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 the bass player is trying to you know do a rap on stage, and the the drummer, the annoyed drummer, just starts bashing his cymbals. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <All> but <laughs> we have the nicest drummer in the world, as uh, Stephen can attest to, is fucked up drummer. He's like the nicest member of our band, so he is very gracious with lending his drums. But you're right, there's. <laughs> a lot of times when you have to borrow drums from someone and it's never that was you know we when we first started kind of playing a lot we would always just show up without guitar our guitars were so crappy or our amps were really crappy and we'd always have to like borrow people's we'd go and say oh can i borrow your guitar because someone would have a better guitar than me or something and and but the drum the drums were always off limit you never asked a drummer if you can borrow their drums or the drums make the most sense because that's that they take up the most space on stage like if all the drummers can use the same drum set well as grown then it's a much smoother uh grown-ups don't want to put together drum sets so if they can all share a drum set they're happy with it but i mean when you're a teenager drummers you know they know it assembles three hundred dollars and you know that's like well, bass amps are also the most com also another very commonly borrowed thing, and um, because they blow blow up, because they blow up, and bass players are always really uptight about that. Like, oh man, I just got this thing serviced. I remember, uh, I remember, and she eventually. I mean, it was lame of me, but I I, I have an early memory of showing up to a um, 
Twisted Roots. Uh, Twisted Roots. <laughs> San Diego. We were supporting Twisted Roots, who had Kira Rossler later of Black Flag on bass. And um, I I was always had a blown bass amp. And I remember I always like, you know, asking, throwing myself at the mercy of the headliner, can I use your bass amp? And usually they'd be like, okay, kid, fine. You're thinking like, oh, what's this? You know, he probably doesn't even know how to turn it up or whatever. And uh, Kira Rossler was not happy. And think that I just had to sing service. That was her. That, that's what I remember. But she let me use it, I would say to her credit, and I didn't blow it. And I often think about that bass amp. She had this beautiful PV, all tube PV. So some like like equivalent to an SVT, but it was a PV and it's stuck in my mind. But um, so it was a very fragile, like 70s amplifier. But um, well, that's another but that's another thing I always now with social media, pictures will pop up from, you know, and I was like, what guitar am I playing? I don't I mean, I'll be playing some weird guitar and I've seen ones where I'm playing this weird Gibson SG. I'm like, that's Mike Ness's guitar. <laughs> <laughs> really? yeah. yeah. Then there's that one at the anti-club where I'm playing that strange. And I, yeah. it's just weird. Oh, like, no, it looks like Les Paul Jr. I just, I mean, the, the audacity for us to show up to ask people if we can use their guitars. I mean, most bands that even have money for, for guitar strings, but I think we didn't have a problem with asking people from Orange County because they were kind of thought of as the rich musicians. Cause like all those groups had Marshall amps when we were all sort of struggling to like have anything that didn't burn up or, or you Orange know. County's hardly Beverly Hills. It's no, not like we you, should treat. But in our with... world, but they were they were way more. I mean, all those bands had full on gear. But but we you know we had a nice family home because even Black you Flag know. had crappy gear, but it was very sturdy. A lot we used Black Flag's gear a lot. All there's the there's pictures of 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 us you using Greg's. Um, but there's one when I'm playing his guitar, but it's but it's on stage with them. Remember the Louis uh, Louis jam? Uh, oh, you jammed. You did. Yeah. Wow. Jeff jammed Louis <laughs> Louis with um. What what era Black Flag? I think it was a Mikasita. Wow. I did it a couple of times. <laughs> oh, and Mikasita that was prime five piece. But why That's... would I have Greg's guitar? Because I only remember him only having that one. He Maybe... might have had two of yeah, them. I think he had two at one point. But that was um. So they were that was triple guitar attack that night. Yeah, was Des the singer? No, that's when um Rollins was in the band, but um Des was on they, second guitar, right? Yeah, they, it was right. right. It was right after it's Chuck. Five piece. It was the five piece with with um Billy Stevenson on drums. Was it? I thought they yeah. had. They had. Oh that. no! It was. It would have been with Chuck Biscuits because yeah. Descendants yeah. played that show also. Yeah, it's when Descendants were still together. Still wow. together. Oh, you mean original descendants? Yeah, before Mark they one. before Milo went to college and okay. then Bill joined Black Flag. Because well, that's wanted, the order of events, if we wanted, right? If we go really heavy, the descendants were a three piece for a long time, and then they were trying singers out. Yeah. So that that could have been a time when they had various. No, this singers. is Milo era. This is this is descendants had um they had finished Milo goes to college and they were really in a great. Oh, really? That, I thought that Wait, what record, is that record like 82, 83, 82? 82. Yeah, right. So this is Mikasitas is 82. It's that would it, make sense. It's it's when Black Flag were a five piece for Chuck Biscuits and and um descendants had Milo goes to college. I, I remember um and we were playing with Janet and Tracy. But Milo probably wasn't in the band for that long before they made the album, probably like a year. Because oh, yeah. because 
I remember, remember when they were trying out singers, they did that show in Long Beach and they had Greg Ginn's girlfriend was the Descendants lead singer. What was her name? I forget her name. She wasn't Medea, but it was like, <laughs> kind of look like Medea. Post Medea. Yeah, the Descendants actually. Oh, wait, wait, speaking singer. of Greg Ginn. Okay, well, we're all over the place already, but. Uh, it's awesome. What do you mean? Let's keep going. Let's go, go, go. I just saw Greg Ginn. Anybody that looks at my Instagram on occasion, I'm, I'm the actual Stephen McDonald on Instagram. Although some 12-year-old tried to get me to give them my account. He's like, well, I think maybe you could use Stephen Dot McDonald. Why? He's like, I'm using it. You be Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> Would you agree if it was Stephen D-O-T, like Dottie, Stephen Dot. Yeah. Like I, they might have suggested a couple of things like that. But anyway, I recently... Um, went to a Black Flag show, and um, which has been sort of verboten. And anybody that is, um, you know, friends with the former members nowadays, because it's been such a con uh, controversial, um, you know, a lot of hard feelings in those camps, unfortunately. But um, I, I haven't seen. I've been so curious to see one of these like shows, and. Um, it was insane. And I said, I said hi to Greg afterwards as well. But anyways, I brought up Instagram because there's a picture of me with Greg again. And it I looks like we're the photo. best. Yeah, it's awesome. It looks like we're like, you know, just hanging out, having a great time. But um, I don't think he knew who I was. <laughs> said, which I, thought yeah. I said, hi, Greg, this is Steve from Red Cross. And he said, he literally said this to me. What did he say? He said, All right. No, he went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I was trying to figure out who you were because, like, the the bass player was this tall, so he's like, "Who's Steve?" Well, no, but we we played Red yeah. Cross played shows yeah. with them after post. Once you had your growth spurt, yeah, I like we did shows when I was sixteen, like well, when and, they were. And you were in the DC three, right, for a minute. Sure. Yeah, I was in DC three, but but we played shows of Black Flag throughout all the different periods of Black Flag. Like we would have played shows with them. And you know when um, towards the end as well. So when I was, you know, with that six foot two, that but, black flag shot was asked. You know, Stephen invited me, and I was too lazy to go because I'd gone. You should have gone. I know, but he facetimed me from the balcony, and like I'm like, what is this? And it was like, it was like this insane damaged version of Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> <laughs> oh you mean that's what he was singing you mean, no like, like greg was doing and the guy was doing humpty uh, dumpty lyrics are you making it up really no i'm good. serious you yeah. we weren't paying attention no i wasn't it's like here I'm look, like, what look. Is, let's make it oh it's black flag and it's like humpty dumpty wow so uh, yeah <laughs> Mike Flaley went into a Humpty Dumpty rant. Which is I pretty, I pretty. That, I mean, he gets awesome. a, that guy gets a bad rap, but that's pretty creative. It's fine. I don't have any problem. You know, whatever. Um, they sound good. I would, I would see them now. They right. were, they were. You know what? It sounded amazing. I had a good time at the show. Um, I mean, I understand. Like, I also want to preface and say that I think it's a real shame how things have turned out. I think that the guys who were in that band originally, um, they um, brought a lot to um, that environment. And it's a shame they don't get to share in whatever, you know, cash value there is in that now. And it's too bad that relationships have have deteriorated to where they have, you know, um, that said, um, you know, um, you never know, though, what the future. Well, brings. you never know. Yeah, yeah. I hope. I hope in the future 
some group of those people figure it out and people work out whatever their differences are. It's uh, it's really unfortunate because for show business sake, if nothing else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For the promoters say, for Paul T, a golden voice say, no, I don't care. <laughs> I know for the band, you know, because I mean, who's ever helping has survived all of it. You know, I, I wish them all success. And I, and I also just think it's sad that the people had real friendships and they built something together and that there's, that, that there's now this terrible um, awkwardness that, um, or the divorce rate is fifty percent, and even more within rock bands. Oh, yeah, okay, that's <laughs> that's interesting. Well, but you would just hope it's like when we were all in these bands back in the eighties and earlier. We're all kids, and you hope that people kind of grow up and everybody can figure out how to um, navigate these relationships a little bit more sane. And I know it's, 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 it's sad when that's not happening for us. Like we've had periods where we had bad blood with a couple of our members um, at some point. And when you get together with them now, it's hilarious and it's fun, but it's always like, Ooh, I remember John Steele, our old original, the drummer who played on Born Innocent, he said, he told, he reminded us that because I had to go to a family reunion and you guys kicked me out of the band when I was gone. <laughs> I totally like, oh, forgot well, I, about that. I had no idea. I thought he left. I thought he was just on to new things. I honestly. Well, he was in our band a couple of times. Yeah. He, he played on Born. He was in the band when we were the tourists. So when we did our, we, we did the demos for our first EP, right? Yeah, we did demos and we're really all over the place, but really quickly, just to talk about that one. Um, John Stilo. Um, you see, Annette's got the hits guy. Well, kind of, yeah. not that, because uh, the Annette's got the hits that everybody else knows is Ron Reyes. But he was there when we made it up. He yeah. did the demos when we were the tourists. And then when we got a gig with Black Flag and we're going to change our name to Red Cross, our drummer was 13 and on family vacation with his family and we to i totally forgot about this but he recently told me that we unceremoniously kicked him out of the band cold-hearted very kind of pete pete best style and um i had no idea because he rejoined the band around the time of born innocent and then unceremoniously stopped coming to rehearsal and um really kind of ghosted us he ghosted us yeah. early on yeah. and i had beef with him for years like when i was in ninth grade and he was like in 11th grade and he was in our band and he wasn't showing up to rehearsals and i'd had to see him at school and he was it was so weird so it's so funny to hear that there was a before story where we hurt his feelings and i don't know it's also crazy but, that way but also like you guys like it wasn't long after how long after before you guys were cool with the circle jerks and like greg oh uh, no i had beef forever there was jeff jeff and i okay so when circle jerks started we didn't have like beef like like i heard that you know there was no like uh but there was definitely circle jerks got so big immediately so we Red Cross, uh, we get Ron Reyes quit our band in this really like dramatic way on stage. Um, very much a lot like the black before Flag. our first record even came out. So he had recorded our first EP, hadn't come out yet. And so we were kind of happening, we were exciting. This is an exciting moment. And then he has this beef with Jeff and he's jealous of Jeff or whatever lead singer. He's, he's bummed that he's behind the drum set. Like you were saying a moment I've ago. I've probably been in his shoes if I 
kept on the trajectory I wanted. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, he's frustrated. He's obviously lead singer. I was stuck behind the drum set. And uh, so he pulled some crap and quit the band. Um, and then we had to find a drummer. And then we didn't. Um, Jeff and I were lazy about finding a drummer. And um, Greg Hudson found Lucky Lear. And we've talked about this maybe to, on, on your time. show. Yeah. And that, I don't think we did we, last time. Okay, so Greg brought Lucky. We used to rehearse in Ron Reyes's room in the basement of the church, the basement that's um, immortalized and um, decline. Decline, yeah. So that was our rehearsal room when we had Ron in the band. And then when Ron left the band, we had to go back to rehearsing in our bedroom. Uh, <laughs> and Lucky brought his drum kit to our house, and he had. These big, those North drums that with the horns, like any Circle Jerks fans might know that I, they might have done shows early on where he he had these, North, they're like these big, huge, like they're like Viking horns. And uh, I can't hear you, Jeff. We'll wait till you get out of the bathroom. But anyway, <laughs> he comes in our little bedroom, smaller than this room and with two twin beds and then he sets up his North drum kit and, and I'm 12 and he's like probably 24 and a, and a law student. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, he gets behind the kit and we're playing, you know, and he's laying into it and playing and probably like 10 times louder than us. And I'm um, probably killing it. But, um, we were just freaked out by him. Jeff and I were because, you know, we couldn't, there was obviously like just the identity differences, like the age gap was so awkward. Um, at least between me and him was at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then lifestyle. I mean, I think, you know, he just was a, it was a weird fit. And then on top of that, he was a real drummer. So he was, he was polished and he, um, and I, there were all these things that just felt um, odd to these 12 and 14 year old garage rockers. That was weird. It was an awkward fit. Right. <laughs> and so after the rehearsal, we sort of told Greg like, yeah, um, well tell your friend, thanks. But like, I don't think that's going to work out. And, um, and then Greg basically didn't get back to us until he told us what that, uh, what wasn't going to work out was that he wasn't going to be playing with us anymore because he started a new band with that guy with and, Keith and he Keith well he Keith and him had just you know um, and so at any rate so that was a big surprise to us so we were surprised that our guitar player was sort of like um, chose chose this prospective drummer auditioner to align with rather than the band he had been in with been in for a year at that point or more. And so we felt rejected. And then they went on to become this big sensation like overnight. Well, also, and they were playing Red Cross and Black Flag songs at their first shows. With print new lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> that was, so there was this thing where Black Flag and us, both, uh, Black Flag had a big beef with them at first because they were doing like a lot of um, famous, I mean, the now famous Black Well, Black I think too. they had a song, I think they had a song that was like Annette Scott, that, that was the music to Annette Scott, the hits. They had songs that, um, a song that Greg and I had written together. He wrote the lyrics, I wrote the music. They, they 
used my music and wrote new lyrics. So it was like all this weird stuff, but they bail. Well, only one they, song they, that they ended up changing all of it, but it, but it was the first, it was outrage. Except there was a, one. there was a lot of moral outrage going on in the camps and, uh, and well, yeah, they ended up keeping my riff. I always say this, whatever. Um, the the uh, the verse riff and skank the da was a red cross song. that was a red cross that i wrote I, I wrote that riff when i was a kid i don't i didn't play it very well just now i'll go get my bass and play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they also kept wasted right by black flag as well but they changed the, music. They, the wasted was yeah. uh i was uh, wasted i was wasted yeah. they do it differently but this this was Then they added no, no, no. We they still do da 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 da. They they still did. Yeah, but, but but they added that. But anyway, that was um our song was called Fun with Connie, and it was about um Connie Francis. It's Connie Francis, which they weren't going to sing a song about Connie. Francis. But then they did the, they turned that into I think that's the verse to Skank maybe or well, something. Yeah, then it goes into this whole like um, I just want some Skank. Yeah, but it's it's that's their epic. That's like their who's overture so um as far as i know i never got any credit for that one so but the thing it just was you know bands are so competitive and it was shocking at such a young age to have um it felt deceptive that um that the lead singer of our mentor group was suddenly behind our back the lead singer of our guitar player's Steel new band stealing the guitar player <laughs> and with that guy using the guitar part that i discovered with and that, brought into show it was that drummer that was like <laughs> so embarrassing at our and, and that we didn't want to it's um, all good you know but so it was it was very sobering and um it was um you know and then the fact that they got so big so fast there was um there like there's an there's a um there's a uh uh, a red, an interview, a flipside interview from like '81, Red Cross interview where we're talking about, um, uh, we're making up some bullshit about how Jeff and I, because at that point Janet and Tracy are in the band, two females, and we're trying to become an all-female group, half-all girl band. Well, no, we're we're claiming that Jeff and I are, are we're going to be transitioning soon <laughs> because we wanted to be an all-female rock band and. Which nowadays, I guess people really wouldn't take very um, funny, but uh, <laughs> but uh, and but Jeff was saying, yeah, we can't do that until we get it until we make enough. Um, we, we, um, we need to make enough cash, For like sex change. Oh yeah, but it was like we need to make as much cash as the Circle Jerks to get our sex change. Because <laughs> like, so, that's the they uh, they're this band that also comes up a lot on this show that when they would go around it was like a different type of person that would come out to those shows. Like it wasn't necessarily the kids that were in the scene. It was like, Oh, when circle jerks. Were yeah. Yeah. Like they were the band that, and you know, I guess it does serve like, it's a really good jumping on point for a lot of stuff, but like those shows would always be the most violent shows yeah. when they would come to town. <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> it is really funny to consider. It's like, Keith and and Greg, like the, both of them, like what are they? They're the teeth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I, they're you know both about five, three or something, and yeah. Petite. But but Greg is immortalized on film for kicking that guy in the butt when he oh, comes on stage. That. <laughs> that's a great scene when he cheapishly runs up to the guy, kicks him, and yeah, then runs. That's a classic. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's just something that they would inspire such um, a, a male aggression when they're um, you know. But uh, 
at any rate, but yeah, so whatever weird, whatever beef, whatever odd feelings we have, that's that was long gone yeah. at some point. But um, but it's just you never and then you never know what's going to happen. I think originally we were talking about why the beef still exists in that black flag camp. Well, okay, yeah. So I was just well, I don't know about why we're still friends with. Well, I know I don't know. I don't want to get into why because I don't really yeah. know. I know. I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff about those records and what and how the royalties have gotten paid out or not and all that stuff. And it's a shame because, um, uh, you know, it would be great to have some of those guys um, playing. And but but I will still say that Greg Ginn, although he put in a very the night I saw them, I would say it was a very kind of. um, Oh, uh, what's the word I want to say? It was a uh, it was his performance was a inward. It we would say inward. Yeah, like, you mean like uh, introverted? No, it's kind of an inward performance instead of an ex and outward. Performance. Well, yeah, it was. Um, the, the word I'm thinking. What's the word I'm thinking of? It just he was always pers- personality wise. He always was kind of had a bit of a um. What's what I want to use? Introverted. Like, no, no, no. More like kind of slow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like kind of like, oh, or like very Californian stoner seventies. Yeah. yeah he, he just he he was always very kind of like super casual and um um you didn't he didn't have like it wasn't high energy so it was always crazy when he'd get on the guitar and he was completely unhinged and unleashed and and it's like there was so much energy coming off of him yeah it was the opposite and now it seems like the energy kind of normally has is what he brings onto stage as well and yeah. so but at the same time the the guitar sound. Although it was a different amplifier and everything, it was exact. It was different guitar too. To me, it really was proof that the tone is in the fingers, yeah. you know, because it was so. And and even I, I look at the analyzes setup. It was like a different setup altogether, and um, but um, it still had that sound, and um, which was so fun for me to listen to, and um. And then, you know, and then the band at times, yeah, like, I don't need to get into a big criticism. I mean, there were times when I would see where the, some of the critics, I can understand why they were critical. But um, but then there were other times it was like, I love this. It's so fun. And um, and he has every right to do this. I'm glad he is, you know. But at the same time, I, it's a bummer that there's all that bad blood. And I wish there wasn't. But anyway, so after the show, my my friends that I were with um, encouraged me to go. He was just out in the crowd taking pictures with fans. And I was always kind of curious. I haven't talked to him in decades. And uh, I always want to know, like, um, talk to adults who are in the room when I was 12, because they um, were, uh, my brain was not cooked yet. So I can my memories are like, but their brains were fried. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, I, have you read that article about the kid trying out for bass who accidentally tries out for bass for Black Flag that circulated a couple years ago? No. Oh, it's unbelievable. But this kid answers a Craigslist ad looking for a bass player for a band and ends up going down there, not really knowing much about Black Flag and winds up auditioning for Black Flag. And he said they were smoking like an ounce of weed. A, oh. Like he, by himself, he's smoking like an ounce of weed. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah. So, the, 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 well, so that would that would explain the uh, the I guess uh, 
lethargy. And, and that was the word I was looking for. It was like lethargic. Like Greg always had a lethargic personality off stage. Yeah. Personality is was always lethargic. And Jeff saying maybe because he was um oh too cooked. No, but yeah, I don't I know. was kidding about that. I didn't think that was his mannerisms so were very hermosa beach. But now he brings his lethargy on a stage, but it's also like you know, I mean, I don't know. But anyway, the point was that um but so it was just interesting when I went down there to say hi. And um I don't know that he knew that he that he connected me with anything. That's fine, you know. It's interesting when you talk to like people that were in that band and people that were like around that camp, like at Watt and and Keith and 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 Bill, like everyone's still very much affected by it in a way. And I find it interesting because you two were like kind of the first ones in the cult, but also the first ones out of the cult. Yeah. Well, so you can understand. So you understand why we're we're out of the cult. Oh, definitely. I think anyone like you look at it and there's. You know, like, it, it just seems like it was, uh, well, I don't know. It, it's very fascinating to kind of, like, study that band and to look at that band. And, like, like you're saying, Stephen, the amount of money that's being left on the table right now in, like, a post-Misfits reunion world. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. re reissues for that stuff. Like, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, you know, like, it is, there is some real bad blood there. And uh, SST yeah, in general, yeah. like, it feels like there's some weird stuff whenever you talk to anyone that was on SST. You know, there's like always like a weird, it, it, you know, you don't hear the same sort of conversations from you guys about Posh Boy or Smoke 7. Right. Well, the the, 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 the SST thing was a real cult. Mm. You know, I mean, I mean, not the later version, but the the initial kind of just post Black Flag thing. Um, it just became like a call the people who work there and you're like you said the, the mike watts and all the people yeah, it was a very but, kind of closed tight system like yeah. people really kind of like not oh. a bad call it was just like a plugged into yeah, when a, the, a central personality yeah there was, but there was no yeah i don't think there was any point where like anybody's like and now we need to drink this kool-aid well they're gonna they, get on the spaceship but they they talk the same they have their own accent which was you freaky know, for us. It was freaky for us. What so, is this shit? Yeah, I mean, I think we we needed to express ourselves in a different way. We kind of rescued our old guitar player, Robert Hecker, from that. Because he, <laughs> I think it, it tends to be he, a lot of people who went to the Maricosta High School have it, this strange, like, <laughs> affect. And it's, like, almost like their own regional di dialect. That's yeah. <laughs> Maricosta's in Hermosa Beach. Yeah, that's a school that, like, all the descendants, Milo and the, uh, the Black Flag people, and uh, you know, Greg, uh, and Keith Morris went there too. I yeah, think. yeah, and it was just in the they, you know, whatever. <laughs> the Maricosta is still there, I believe. It's you know, it's still a um, that was, yeah, that, yeah. What did but, you, oh, go on, sorry. Oh, and we're, I mean, I'm, yeah, nothing else to say about those. Two. <laughs> what, one thing I was remiss to talk to you guys about last time that uh, people ask me about a lot is Steven's story the first time he was on the show about the way he is so affected by record stores and how every time he goes to a record store, he needs to take a shit because of the pressure you inflicted upon him by judging his musical tastes. Oh. Oh, we did. Now, did I put it out? Yeah, it's probably. Uh, yeah, at some point, I probably came to some conclusion. That I would think it's not about being judging musical taste. I think it's like there's too much to choose from. So your body, your brain, <laughs> and body going to shut. Well, down. yeah. So there's a lot of there's probably a lot of psychology there, and who knows? Like, I know other people have the same well, experience. But true, the stakes were. I know the stakes were high for me because um, 
um, because of my first, and I think I probably told it in detail about my very first record buying experience where I brought home two records that I love today, but my brother criticized one of them because we he, we already had, as he put it, we already, we already have a bunch of these songs on other records. Yes. So he, he, he didn't approve of my, my five-year-old um, choice of bringing home, at that point, I guess the two-year-old live Rolling Stones record, Get Your Yaya. You were right. I still listen to Get Your Yaya. Thank you. So is that sort of an official I, apology? I, <laughs> yeah, because, years later. because I, I have all the reissues and like the bonus ones with all the with the opening act set. I have not, I've not put that record down. Okay, you brought it. So up. I got the last word on that. Jeff has even gone on to uh, he's got the bonus tracks for that record. But no, but listen, that would be in a line with like your sort of initial criticism, which was we already have a bunch of these songs on other records. So you're still looking for the other songs on that record from those recordings that but didn't that's make it. You know, when you're a kid, you, I mean, records were expensive, you know, like, and really expensive. If a record costs four bucks in 1972, yeah, what, what is that? Is that like $40? I don't know. I'll tell you, it's, like, it's $30 for Neurotica in uh, 1996. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I mean, yeah, so, when, yeah. when I saw that for record for sale at at the record store Neurotica, they had a copy of Neurotica for sale. You know that, uh, right? We've talked uh, about this before. But you know, it's yeah, I it was just trying to like you know get the most for your money, get the most songs for your money. My dad hit me to the fact that buying singles was a waste because for for a uh, dollar fifty, you only got two songs, and for like four dollars, you got the whole album. Four dollars was hard to come by in those kind of Walton's. Wow, so Terry days. actually broke it down to yeah, you. Yeah, but it was you're... kind of ridiculous becoming from where he's coming from. <laughs> because when he was buying records, the only song like records were all full of like filler and crap, and then the single would be on them. So they were just made to to cash in on the singles. But if we can go back to my experience right. about uh I do that's that's an early memory of me of mine of uh because I remember freaking out and not knowing why I was freaking out. So I bought my mom took me to the record shop, said pick out any two records. And I think it's either before I started school or maybe I was like had to go to the doctor and get some shots. Tonsils or, out. Or no, it wasn't tonsils out. It was just like I had a day at the at the at the doctor's. And so my mom took me to get to go to the record store afterwards and told me to pick out any two records. And I, I was super excited to show my older brother when he got home from school. And I chose Alice Cooper Killer, which would have been a new record, would have been towards the front of the record store, and and get your yayas out. Um, and I'm five, you know, and um, and both remember, great choices in a record store where you could have picked well, anything. Not bad luck. I mean, yeah, decent. Yeah, I mean, I could have picked any. I could have picked any fucking, you know, John Denver record and Captain um, and Tennille or something. Yeah, it was pre Tennille, I think. Maybe, yeah. but, but I chose those two records, and um, and and when Jeff came home, he was like, if he was, he was, he was approved of Killer, but was on the fence. Just he wasn't even fully disapproving. Just on the fence about um, get your yayas out, and I freaked out like i remember being like huge reaction and at least that's my memory of it now that i had this massive reaction and 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 like even wondering like why am i so upset you know and it, you know now i realize now it's like i really wanted his approval you know mm -hmm. and i thought i had fucked up i had made a mistake and um and i couldn't be trusted with that um you know, with that, that, that opportunity of bringing home the right music. And so that's why my dime store shrink 
uh, my dime store shrink guessing has, has, you know, um, come up with this thing that that's where that stems from. Then when I rock into a record store now, I immediately want to take a crap because I'm still so anxious oh, about that at first. <laughs> no, but I, I think it's also, it, it goes Jeff the way that I've like kind of been thinking about this too recently. Like I think as an older sibling, you don't wow. realize the impact of these things that are having on the younger person below you where yeah, like, you know, watching it my kids is where I'm really seeing it. And then I think back to the way I treated yeah. my brother and I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, like that would have been harsh. To, right. It would have been the ending of the world for them. Like, you know, I could just picture if my, my you know, seven-year-old came home and told the 10-year-old, like, uh, you know, I got this for you. And the 10-year-old is just like, oh, really? That one? It, I could just picture the freak out that would happen. And it's two years older than you at this point, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, you don't. I, I, I guess being the older brother, you don't have that perspective. You don't yeah. ever. I mean, I don't. That wasn't my experience. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. So at any rate, but um. But no, it's great. We had a major breakthrough today. Well, it's also awesome because I, <laughs> as I get older, you know, people have to put more fiber in their diet to make sure they don't get constipated. I never have to worry about constipation as long as there are still record stores in Los Angeles. I'll never have to worry about not being. <laughs> Entirely regular. It's the only problem is the record stores never have fucking uh, I'll I'll say this yeah. right never have the new amoeba <laughs> records, which are, you know, yay amoeba, but they do not have bathrooms anymore. No, they did in the original one. No, no, well, no, they're employee bathrooms, and that was actually one of the things that was very cool is that we had done enough performances in amoeba where they gave me i knew the code to get into their bathroom yeah. which was, was like wow i've made it like that's one of the perks of having been this underground rock musician all these years i i now have bathroom privileges at my local record shop and um but they have a new location and now you have to go back and i have worked, worked my way into the well, <laughs> we have to do a gig we haven't done a gig at amoeba for a while because i want bathroom privileges <laughs> my, well i was going to say friend of the show former guest tuna huge red cross fan i'm sure she'll hook it up for you steve all right on she'll That's make sure great. you can yeah, share yeah. You want to DM me or something? Yeah, definitely. I'll put you in touch. Give me that code and I'll come in. Actually, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't been into the new location. They've been open for like two years. Right, they, yeah, but it's because of COVID. You saw the COVID excuse. I still have COVID excuse. Yes, yeah. that's right. We, we, we had something. So, something came up. Well, I was going to actually talk to you because like another thing, you brought up your, your folks earlier there. And I was just wondering, Jeff, what it was like when Stephen went missing at home during that time period, because your parents had been unbelievably the amount of freedom you guys had to go to these shows. And then all of a sudden here's the other side of it where your brothers disappeared. And I was just wondering what it was like during that period for you. Uh, it was brutal. It was brutal. Cause I, you know, I didn't know if he was alive or not. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, you I, guys knew I was alive past a certain point. Oh, past a certain point. Yeah. But like, you know, those first couple of weeks were gnarly. Yeah. But my well, my parents were devastated. It was horrifying. And, you know, we had we had um, certain certain um, and they put freedoms, but at, but at the same time, they were we always had to fight for them. So it wasn't like it was it was like, oh, just do your own thing. They were never like that. But we'd always find like we would we present some people who are older as like our mentor, our um, chaperone, Keith Morris, or whatever. We're in good hands. We're with Joe Nolte, you know, <laughs> yeah. someone who shouldn't have been driving at the time. But I mean, 
you know, so I mean, the, the whole the disappearance, what was, oh, it was brutal, it was horrible, but, um, and it was terrible for them. Uh, oh, I just, it was so, but, I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, you know, it was, it, we were just. Now, did, did they try to, um, I mean, rain me you, in? Yeah, you can't even really speak in terms of like normal behavior at yeah. that point because they're in such trauma. I mean, I bet, they, yeah. Everyone's experiencing trauma at that point. I mean, you can imagine now as a dad. Oh, I can't, if, I can't um, even. Well, they, you can't, didn't yeah. In fact, I know that I know that Holden's 13 now. So it's the exact age yeah. I was. So. I, for me, it was felt like, oh, my God, this is like the, sh the stuff you read about on Eyewitness News. It was fucking horrible, horrible. But, um, you know, what? the parents, yeah. Would... But, you know, but but to the credit, um, well, many things to the credit. But when I say um, when I came home, yeah, you would think that maybe they would say, I mean, I can speak about what it was like when I came home. And they, they, you would you would think maybe they'd be like, no more of this rock and roll. You're going to do school and you're going to we're changing everything. And um, they didn't do that. You know, they they still recognize. But basically, I had been like brainwashed. And it was a matter of like debriefing me and then letting me get back on with what the course that we had been on. So they, they didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. They, you know, they, they saw that there was still value in the fact that we were passionate about music and that, and that just a very unfortunate, unfortunate thing happened where I intersected with someone that was really not well mentally. Mm -hmm. And, um, and got to me and I was unfortunately vulnerable and we didn't have the, the skills to communicate our way out of that situation. And, um, you know, but it didn't, it didn't become, um, we didn't, it didn't, it didn't make everything completely break down like it could have, I guess, you know, uh, you know, like I know sometimes when there's tragedy, everybody just, you know, scatters or something, you know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like a death. I can't compare it to that. Did it when you came home? Wasn't that around the time when we started doing like the Born Innocent stuff? Yeah, like but it's like the Born Innocent. We got album. the drummer back in the band. Yeah, the Born Innocent album was well. Because the thing is, we so Red Cross had been that was your so there's too. flyers are out there from the summer of eighty, and um, I've seen these flyers where it's like I think it was like May twenty third, nineteen eighty. We're playing with Black Flag at the Fleetwood. And um, I remember, and it says the return of Red Cross. So it's like, we've been together for less than a year, but um, we are already like remounting a comeback. But that was before you left though. Yes. So, <laughs> right. So I'm trying to stay linear here. And uh, this is before I left. And, but Circle Jerks, Greg has left our band, Circle Jerks have formed, and we're remounting, um, where we're mounting a comeback as a five piece and we've got Des Kadena on guitar and Chat Lear on guitar and we've got a different drummer and um and we even did shows and we did yeah. we did a show where the Minutemen's the Minutemen we did a show opening for the plugs and the Minutemen opened up the very was their second gig ever and we played above them or whatever and uh um and that was still in that 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 was the few months before I ran away. And then but when I ran away, that that version of the band just kind of disappeared into the ether. It wasn't a real great. It sounds great, but it wasn't that good. It was pretty no, good. We, no, we, we, hadn't covered, written, we, we covered a teenage Jesus song. Yeah, we did it orphan. But we hadn't we we weren't on we were resting on our laurels. Jeff wasn't on guitar yet. So that was a big thing that changed was that. When I came home, it was time we started it. We finally like 
we got we when it sort of got let the stench of everything because all these things that had happened prior was like well, you know we have this band and um amazing we're playing a show at a birth at a you know a uh, uh, junior high school graduation party. Now we're playing this riot at a park with Black Flag, Pollywog Park, and then, and then you know, and then we make a record. Oh my God! And a recording studio. And then our guitar player quits. Oh my God! And then we got to form a new group. Oh no! And we, you know, we've had our hearts broken, and we started new. And then I get into this re inappropriate relationship with this cool Hollywood punk rocker who's part of the original punk scene. And then Darby Crash kills himself, and all this crazy and stuff happens. John Lennon dies, which this is isn't this the anniversary? Of yesterday was yeah, the anniversary. Yeah. All this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there's all this crazy stuff that happens. It was like this whirlwind year and a half that was just like mind blowing, and it all kind of comes to this big sort of um you know climax with me you know basically getting blackmailed to leave town and i leave town and, and it's just totally traumatic my parents my family life changes forever my mom only catnaps still to this day because she was waiting for me to come home every night yeah. and she couldn't sleep and she slept on the couch it was just absolutely horrible and um and, you know, and so we just wanted, and when I came home, the hope was just that, oh, can we go, like, can we, how do we, how, what's, what, what, how do we get back to that place of, you know, happiness and enthusiasm for things and not just be so freaked out and scared, you know, it was really traumatizing. It was like, okay, is it going to be okay? That was always the thought. Like, is it going to be okay? I remember that. But like, that when you came back, that was the first time that I remember writing songs again since the original batch of songs. Right. And so we started writing a bunch of songs. Right. So that's anything that like what we did was it seemed like we just kind of started the band over anew. And that was kind of that was this um, that seemed to be um, some kind of safe space or something. Yeah, like. and, and we and because we were resting on our laurels for years as as songwriters, we wrote our original batch of songs, and then that year and a half, not a single song. Then you come back, and then I be then I start playing guitar, and we start writing songs together and separately. Okay, he says resting on laurels for years. Okay, no, I mean creatively. I mean we did. I mean, it would we, mean resting on laurels for months is what it would. Yeah. Be. Well, from from the first, from 1978 until whatever, we only we wrote like 10 songs and we never wrote any other songs. Right. So by 81, we definitely needed new we songs. We were like Little Richard and like those original rock and roll guys who did like their initial batch of songs and then never wrote another song again and played <laughs> for 50 years. We could have been that. And it, the Born Innocent record was our rebirth because that's when we started writing again. There's There's tons of bands from that wave of bands that you guys were a part of that have done that. You know, yeah, they're still just playing that one record they wrote when they were yeah. in their early twenties. You guys have reinvented yourselves and still put out classic records. You know, like I had a guy on the other day from the band Sixteen, and uh, he's you're his favorite band of all time. And we we're just talking about how, you know, and we talked about this last time, but the progress of the band through all these different eras, like it's you can tell the history of of American rock and roll, you know, post punk, you know, punk, you know, post punk, uh, obviously, but through red cross oh, wow guys as people oh wow that's 
That's great. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parties, Parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's, it's uh, you know, I guess why, you know, and maybe maybe you didn't have a choice in this, but why weren't you guys part of the decline? Was that something that you heard about between, when it was happening? It was in between, we were kind of in between um, lineups. I think that it was, yeah, well, because Greg's already in the circle jerk. Yeah. Greg's in the circle jerk. And, and was Darby's like, still alive. Yeah, so yeah. so Darby's still alive. So I think it's right around the time that we were reforming as a five-piece. And then also, like, you know, I mean, we just didn't have Penelope Spheres wasn't necessarily. But we were, yeah, but the five piece wasn't real a real serious. Probably played about six shows as the five piece. But like, yeah, we weren't writing new songs. Yeah, yet. we were just kind of we were more interested hanging out in the scene and playing shows occasionally. It wasn't like a real thing until until later, I think, you know, the. Well, it was very real to me. But I mean, we didn't know we weren't we weren't. um I don't think we would have been on Penelope Spheres radar as like what are the defined what you know what's the real substance who who are the people making a difference yeah, in this we're playing that, that whole like you know society hates me kind of um vibe that the other people in that movie were kind of all posing because we knew everyone <laughs> yeah like, oh my god we, you know you just like well yeah we was at like political bands like lived in beverly hills was pretending to be this like street gutter punk and um the only one in that film who's like really really truly great is eugene and often but the guy with the x head yeah, no, not X said Eugene was um oh Eugene, he, yeah, the fucking cops, man. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah absolutely. That's right. Was right. He moves himself in that, but I mean, I yeah, yeah. It's it's that's yeah, we weren't really we weren't very good at that pose, that the particular pose. Just, but yeah, and it just I think at that moment when they're making that movie, we weren't really functioning. So it's a combination of things, yeah. yeah. So we, we, you know, we it took us a while to get it back together after the blow. Of- Miss opportunity, Miss opportunity for Penelope Spears. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's my. Well, that's- no. You know, how could you look at this band of little kids and not want them? One hundred percent. That's what I think. You know, I think as like a, a person who made, you know, whatever documentary type thing for years. Like that's the band I go to. Like, oh, there's a band of little kids in this scene of sometimes terrifying adults. Like, let's let's film these guys. And they have awesome and brother consciousness and, you know, in this punk world. So it would have been. But then and also the question is, why did she ignore us? Um, whatever, 10, 15 years later when she made a um, decline too, because she knew we deserve that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a bit of a, a scathing, but, uh, but, you know, but we were still, um, you know, 
uh, we had we, to, yeah, we were playing the LA scene with those bands. Yeah, we were still part of the community of LA music, but not their community. Not, not necessarily part of their community, but but we would have played the same venues as a lot of those bands. That, but that's a huge difference from being a, a part different, of Odin scene. No, we were part of Odin scene, but we did do a show with Poison. We did once. We played with Poison once. Did you ever play with the Mentors? Oh yeah, we played Mentors a lot. We yeah, were, one of my we favorite. Friendly with them. Oh, here's one of my mentor stories. So we're at the Cafe de Grand and uh, tiny little backstage area, and um, and it was one of those things where I realized, like, oh yeah, mentors are just like we're all kind of doing our own drag, you know, we're all doing our own shtick, and um, well, we needed dressing rooms. And so yeah, so we're all Jeff and I are like, you know, we've probably like using you know trying to look our best to look like you know beat up uh you know johnny thunder yeah you know drag queen you know transvestite prostitutes that were left you know for dead in a in an alley somewhere like johnny thunder style you know teasing her hair and you know putting on like you know platform shoes that we bought at the thrift store and um and then and then um um uh, el duce el duce is in the same little uh, cubby getting ready for his performance and he's got a bottle of of um a1 steak sauce or hp sauce and um he's spreading it on the butt of his um long john long john <laughs> <laughs> and that's what his, his stage garb was to, to to look as if he had shit his pants have you watched the mentors documentary on tubi I no. I watched it a couple of years ago. Wow, it's it's amazing how there's just like two different versions of it. Where one is that it was all for show, and then the guitar player who keeps insisting, like, no, there's a kernel of truth in every one of those songs, man. I, oh, I can know. <laughs> I totally can see where both there both those truths lived simultaneously. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't like some dumb hillbilly dude. He was bright. What was the name? His name. Um, El Duce's name was Elton, not him. Elgin, Elton, Elton. El, it was El, it was, Elton? was it Elton? Elvin or Elvin? Maybe it's Elvin. You're right. I'll look I mean, it. Like, I can look it up. He was always really, really. I mean, he was really drunk and wasted, but he was really funny. Really, really, really funny to talk to, and it wasn't like you know, what the men like. If I would imagine what it would look like to see the mentors having knowing nothing about them. It would be like scary, but no, they were just they were they were a, com a comedy act with some but, really good metal type garage song. Yeah, they're satire. I mean, El Duce is a, a, he was a filmmaker who made like weird, you know, like he had made um, that what was that movie that he did? Um, the um, the Elvis Presley's fifty, um, the Elvis Presley suit. I don't know. It. Oh, it was a short film that used to play before Pink Flamingos, and it was about Elvis Presley's gold suit going on tour, and it was really good. And their "Get Up and Die" video was genius. Yeah, yeah, he was so smart. It was a know. film actually, because they that was pre MTV. They used to show it before they went on. Well, he because he yeah, he has connections with the Screamers too. I, I think we talked about it last time, but back in Seattle, they did a band together and stuff. So, it, oh really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's like the uh, same way. There's like this high school up in Seattle where everyone, like from Vince Neil to El Duce to the Screamers, uh, Bill Riffin, all went through the school and they all right. played in this band together at different times. Wow. Wait, Vince Neil was in a band with the Screamers? Yeah, not Vince Neil, sorry, uh, Nikki Six. Vince Neil oh, was. Yeah. In, I was going to say Vince Neil lived in Compton. Yeah, Vince Neil was in the Wigglers. The, right. Was it the band that was it Zoo Wiz Kids? 
It's uh, the the Whiz Kids exactly. Which I was going to say, you guys did you did a Z band too, right? Yeah, uh, I was just looking at a flyer for Z Whiz Kids because I'm like, we we are Z Malibu kids. Yeah, I was going to say, is that a tribute? It. it was Tomatoes like art rock. Any any that's so crazy. And it was um and Nikki Six was in it. Oh, I don't know. He said yeah, Nikki Six was in it, and I don't know if him and El Duce were in it at the same time, but yeah, it's very very weird like I, I feel like this is you know this is my area of study this is where i want to live for the rest of my life well did you see did you i, I saw a flyer that um that christian hoffman had made for z whiz kids opening up for alice cooper yeah no yeah i saw that today really? on instagram yeah look there, at christian hoffman's um, um feed and where where did they play what what, 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 there was what era alice cooper was it um it, i i think it was welcome to my nightmare because it had the well the flyer had that welcome to my nightmare and that would have been 75 Five. or six yeah 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 so that it, yeah there's a radio documentary that kxp might have done or someone up in the pacific northwest put out about that show because the the whiz kids came out and it was very much a theater troupe and just kind yeah. of fucked with the crowd and alice cooper freaked out and it did not go over well and apparently it was like never again and they were banned but uh, that's the that alice would have freaked out because i mean that sounds like they total like early alice cooper to tomato to plenty was um at one point he was a member of the cockettes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and the cockette like in this picture of him for this whiz kids flyer he kind of has that cockettes chrysanthemum the guy that who was the head look where it's kind of like a clowny drag kind of you know look i can it's kind of right right in line with the original alice cooper groups so yeah, no it's it's very it's very hypocritical doubt because it was like maybe he felt threatened by their theatrical you know presentation <laughs> I think they were also fucking with the audience, maybe. I, I, you know, to be honest, I haven't listened to the documentary in a couple of years, so I should go back and re-listen to it because it might, maybe Alice loved it and I'm remembering well, it wrong. Maybe Alice, well, because Alice a hip, was a drunk hypocrite. No, because no, Alice, Alice was always talking of, there's that really great thing when they played the Cheetah with the Doors and Alice Cooper band opened and they the audience hated them so much that, that they drove every single person out of the venue. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then I mean, also, and they used to what they like, like you know, the the chicken. And the and no, the that was in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, like uh, basically tarring and feathering the audience with, with like pillows. chicken feathers. No, and, that's not happened. Yeah. There was they they used to have be, they used to kill the mime on stage, and they'd have these big pillow oh. fights, and 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 you'd see all the feathers flying everywhere. But during that show, someone threw a live chicken on stage, <laughs> and Alice threw it back in the audience. The audience destroyed the chicken. Yeah. Then start throwing the pieces back on stage. He, he thought he thought it was going to fly. There's photos of it where he's like winging yeah. the chicken around. I don't know how he thought it was going to fly if he was winging it like that. But and, then yeah, and people were throwing pieces of it back, and I guess it went into like it went into like um, the front handicap section of the, there was a whole part of the of the front of the stage that was made for handicapped oh. people in um, wheelchairs. Yeah. yeah. So how could that person be? The, the, <laughs> and then he called uh, Frank Zappa, and Zappa, I guess, was kind of his manager at that point, or like at least advising him. He, he signed them for the. He signed them. To no, first... but you're saying at the Whiskey Night. That, no, uh, no, this is this is that Toronto Chicken Night, and I guess he oh, was I the one. It. Frank Zappa signed Alice Cooper Group and put out their produced their first album and put out the first two albums. Okay. First, no. Well, the third one. There's the first, first two. Album. 
There's copies. Uh, it's on bizarre. Yeah, yeah. There's but, copies of it on on straight. Yeah, Ridge, he, but I don't think he had anything to do with them after the first album. But they were on his label, Warner Brothers. But a, his subsidiary bizarre, was it Bizarre? It's, but he had two. He had Bizarre and Straight. And Bizarre was like um, uh, Captain Beefheart, right. and Straight was Alice Cooper. So Alice Cooper was supposed to be like the. I think they they had like a sort of like. Uh, you know, this is our corporate rock here. This is straight music. And and that was it. That was Frank Zappa's idea of sellout music was that first <laughs> that first Alice Cooper record, <laughs> which is totally out there music. But do, do you guys ever have any runs with uh Frank Zappa? No. No, I, I, I never met Frank Zappa. We 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 worked with Moon Unit, and um, yeah, we were friendly with her for a while. Where she's in um, Spirit of '76. Yeah, I think we were... that's where I was thinking about the connection. Yeah, yeah, he um, when we met her, like he he was he got sick pretty soon after that. Yeah, but no, I never met him. I yeah. we, I love we, him. We recently went um, but it was more of an Ike and Tina Turner thing. There's a there's a. a uh, Ike Turner used to have a recording studio in Inglewood, California, which was the town next to Hawthorne where we grew up. And there's really cool footage. Of it was called Bullock Sound. Bullock Sound on La Brea and um, in the Baldwin Hills. And there's really cool footage on, you can see it on YouTube now, of Frank Frank Zappa recording at Bullock Sound in Inglewood. And he's using the Ikeettes as his backups, backup singers. And he's working with them. And he's like, you know, da -da 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 -da, doing that weird, crazy jazz <laughs> shit. And uh, and Ikeettes are just like singing along with them. It's really badass. And um, the building still exists. And I don't know. Well, that building is also famous because there's also stories about like Keith Richards and Ron oh. Wood, you know, showing up to an Ike session. Ike was laying down some tracks, but he was when he was really coked out. And then he like he locked them in the studio and brought out the guns, and they it took them like Puts eight hours. Puts a gun on the desk, kind of thing. <laughs> no one's going anywhere tonight. But, um, but but no, the cool thing about that story was that the Stones, they were playing at the Forum, which is just down the road. They were playing the they were supposed to be playing the Forum that night, and um, and and Ike locked. The stones in the bill in his recording studio, and I thought I thought uh, Jagger too. No. But was, they couldn't get out, and the, the but they the no one canceled the show. They eventually talked their way out, and they didn't. You know, they played it like midnight or something. So the <laughs> entire like twenty thousand seat arena waiting till. Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood could talk their way out of um, Bullock's <laughs> and I'm and I'm a huge fan of like the I can Tina Turner review records that they made at that period late 60s early 70s so we would drive by that place so I love that you asked us about Frank Zappa and we've sound a way to turn well, it into an Ike Turner story and I <laughs> <laughs> but that building still exists and now it's like an optometrist and yeah well it was it was really a cool i mean this building there was no recording studios all and there was like a nor it was kind of a very suburban neighborhood but this this building always looked like a fortress because it had like double doors and I always drove by it and, and um we finally stopped and then we stopped I and mean, it was during covid and we were, we were just kind of like hunting around if we could see any old artifacts of the former you know, studio, the studio. And eventually some girl came to the door. She's like, can I help you? And it was like someone that I don't know what they were doing in that. You know, they probably had some dot com in there. So I, I'm like, oh, we're just checking it out. Um, Tina Turner used to record here. 
Like, was, what? This is like in Tina Turner's recordings. <laughs> she's really? And they're like, yeah, we were just trying to see if there's anything left from that period. She was very impressed. Yeah, well, can it, and the room is still cool. It still had really high ceilings. You know, now it's repurposed as like some kind of other kind of uh, mail order. Yeah, some other optometrist. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a multi-purpose building now. But uh um but anyways now we never I never we never intersected with the Zappa world. I know the Zappa world is always heavily um featured in anything 60s Los Angeles. You know, it's the generation older than us. Yeah. And so, you know, we weren't go we went to the whiskey for the first time at the very end of the 70s. So we missed that era, you know, both. I mean, we kind of caught. It's we, weird. They were only ten years before that. It's true. Like, but <laughs> first time we went to the whiskey was in 1978, July of 78. We saw X open for the Avengers, and and I think it's one thing they think always neat about that is that um, it was um, there were two shows that day. They, they they did an early show and a late show, and bands would often still at that point do residencies at the whiskey. And uh, and they would do early shows and late shows, and it wouldn't be because they sold one of them out. It was just like it was still they were still running the business like the way they would had been running it in the sixties, yeah. yeah. where it was like almost like a um, review, like a review, a nightclub review, and um, and so we kind of caught the tail end of that era, the very end of that era when we went to our first shows at the whiskey and, um, and we were very lucky that they had an early show because it was like an eight o'clock show. We could talk our parents into driving us. And of course, afterward, and they waited outside in the car and we, afterwards we would like go to them and can we please go to the late show? Can we play? And they like, get the hell in the car. <laughs> well, yeah. Cause the story of the Stooges doing those two shows of the whiskey during their last run. Yeah, like that stuff that was, yeah, so they were still doing that. And like, yeah, when Led Zeppelin we, or ACDC or any of those bands, they all play two. Songs. We saw the the Runaways and the very last lineup of the Runaways at the Whiskey and probably at the early show. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's cool. it's funny because that is such like, um, yeah, like it's, it's weird to think of that because it feels like a much longer ago era that the bands were doing that, but it is such a punk existed as i guess that's where punk really breaks down that old style of entertainment too yeah so yeah i mean we could still do it now like if we wanted to do a show at the whiskey or the or the rock scene say we want to do two shows they'd be full their infrastructure would be fully ready to to handle that Mm -hmm. yeah we just normally we just we would just refuse to do two shows because it would be like Uh, we were always like man we put so much into it you know but i guess people were still thinking like you know it's coming off that tradition of like you know with the beatles like as long back as far back as the beatles and the hamburg you know where they do you know five sets a, a day and doing 20 minute sets or when red know? cross and melvin's play together like you and dale do two entire sets well yeah but we were playing in two different bands so i know yeah. but i this it doesn't really matter south by southwest kind of but there used to be this tradition that a live show was like a half hour you, performance. If you think about it, all you were doing was swapping out lead singers. Right. But but I'm still just saying that like that that multi-show thing yeah. came out of the when a nightclub. When it's a night, but a nightclub set was like a half hour show. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense that you might do multiple performances. Well, and I think in the in like the 60s whiskey, they they wanted people dancing because as long as they're dancing, they're drinking alcohol. So they don't give a crap about the bands making money for playing two shows. It was more like 
you keep the audience there as long as possible because they're at bar. Well, they probably had DJs, you know, playing. They had many people dancing during the in-between bands, too. Well, it's still like that, too. Like, I, well, post-COVID, everything's changed. But uh, I found, like, before that, like, you'd always have certain clubs where, you know, the headliner's not going on till 11 because they want to keep people drinking till last call. It's a nightmare. Yeah. Here the band, it's a complete nightmare. And you know oh. if anyone's in the audience drinking is a nightmare because they've already passed the hump and it's like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be rough after that. You know, I was going to ask you guys, because, you know, obviously what you went through, Stephen, and there was a woman that was murdered at the mass club, I believe, by the Hillside Strangler and Darby's suicide. And, and it was, you know, as romanticized as that scene is, because I think it does tend to get romanticized, especially compared to the hardcore scene that came in next in terms of violence. But it was a very adult scene, that first Los Angeles scene. And like all this shit is going on and it's like a, a real kind of grown up world that you're living in as kids. And ultimately, punk becomes kind of like a safer place, I think, for kids. But the first wave of young people involved in this scene were exposed to like real dangers. Well, the you know, it was way more violent when the kid, the teenagers came. It was way more violent. I mean, those were freaky things. I mean, that the the story about the I forgot about the hillside yeah, strangler. That was, that was um one of Rick Wilder's girlfriends who I don't think she, this was a girl like it, that. That has nothing really to do with that scene. That was just one someone in the scene, one of their girlfriends. Okay, it's some some very notorious kind of Hollywood very dark drug kind of thing i mean i think that um you know it, but it was an adult world yeah. i mean it was definitely more of an adult world i mean what we were like uh it was an older crowd than it later became you know i mean like um everybody was jeff's jeff's friends you know jeff's age peer group were three to five years older than me. But then that group of people were hanging out with people that were, you know, were following bands that were 10 plus years older than us. And that's what the average age of the, the you know, the the first um, group of LA punk rockers are all at least 10 plus years older than me. It, it wasn't, it wasn't safe at all on a psychological level. And maybe somewhere down the road it wasn't it turned into something bad but it wasn't violent yeah it wasn't a violence yeah. most people were like just leftover weirdos from like the la glitter scene or or you know like you're talking about the the, the z whiz kids that came out of like uh you know art instead of a uh, art art uh like art school kind of mentality which was art and, school mentality was a lot of the original la and san francisco bands and, <laughs> and you know but um the the first person who cut our hair like into like punk rock hair there's a girl named um connie clarksville um just recently passed away and um she and i saw this on alice bags um um uh, instagram feed and she talked about connie clarksville who's often pictured in those uh pictures of the mask and that original you know 12 15 people you know the members of the of the the bags and and the go-go's and um and i just do remember and it made me think about those experiences where jeff and i would go to this she worked in a um at a uh hair salon a hollywood hair salon on wilcox on wilcox <laughs> really close to where the mask was and um and we paid you know we had our you know suburban parents cash and we sat down and we'd say yeah we want to i want to i want to get rid of this surfer look and i want to be you know 
I want my status to rise in your ranks, you know, with the cool Hollywood punk rockers. And she cut our hair and she cut my brother's hair into a real kind of spiky, Sid Vicious kind of vibe. And I still was in like seventh grade and I was really a freaked out. And I think she got me, gave me more like an early Beatles cut, you know, but it was like <laughs> the ear was showing, which was very square in 1979 or late 78 or something. And, uh, um, but I just remember her being this person that knew these bands and was roommates with these bands and hung out with these bands. And, and she would just kind of like go, Oh, that's funny that you guys like this music. And, um, and she wanted to hear like, you know, Oh, well, you know, Oh, you like, you know, what, what do you like? And we'd be like, Oh, I like the bags and I like the drums. Like, really? Oh my God. That's so funny. And then she would tell us about her friends and, uh, I felt connected. It was this Black like Randy and the Go-Go's Belinda Carlisle. Yeah. It, the whole thing was like, you know, it was like, uh, she was part of this thing that was so alluring and so exciting to us. And I remember getting my head kind of the Charlotte story. Yeah. The, um, Charlotte Caffey from the Go-Go's is my wife. And she was also in the Go-Go. I mean, she was in the, uh, the eyes. Then she was in the Go-Go. So she, she was part of that original 12. And, um, and I just, I loved them. And um, Connie Clarksville was cutting my hair one day and she she had just finished cutting Charlotte's hair. And she like, Charlotte was always kind of getting pressure from the rest of the band because she was kind of more of a prog rocker. She was like, like 60s and she liked early Genesis. She had really long kind of 60s hair and they were always hassling her about cutting her hair. Really? <laughs> yeah, so she, so she got... Um, so I remember sitting there as Charlotte was just finishing. She goes, oh, it looks good. And she had had like, um, she gave her the first kind of page boy. If you've ever seen the original, we got the beat single. She has like a, like a really short sixties page boy haircut. And so I remember seeing like, wow, that's Charlotte. And, and, and um, I was there. Yeah, we, we got her first punk haircut. And, um, <laughs> well, we were huge Gogos fans, like early, early days. Yeah. Like from the very, we probably missed maybe two of their Us, shows. And we used to go to the shows with the original Descendants and The Last and everyone, they would like driving home with like, like Frank Nevada and Bill Stevenson and Joe Nolte. And they're like, Joe Nelty loved Charlotte. No, he loved Jane and, and the Descendants guys loved Charlotte and all the stuff. Like they, <laughs> like, they were, you know, pop hits like Red Cross, Descendants and Last were all like came from the Beatles kind of foundation. And yeah, it's just like so bizarre. That's it. The years. last, the last are, uh, well, it's sort of like Black Pink. We saw uh, uh, biased. The last were biased towards oh, Jane. Joe Nolte. And Descendants were biased towards every, Charlotte. Every night on the way home from Long Kong Cafe was how far did Joe Nolte get with in his conversation with Jane Wheeler? <laughs> and then, of course, they like, you know, Charlotte's like the studious nerd. And like, the you know, she was the one who like, you know, she was of that band. And um, yeah, and of course, Frank and um, Bill. Bill. Yeah, yeah. oh, that's sharp. funny. It's funny to think about that. Yeah, so you remember seeing the Gogas with those guys? Yeah, and yeah, then yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about it later, I think, and I think that's one cool. of the shows. I think one of the times we saw them. I think uh, the last played, or the, oh, they opened for the last or something. Oh, the the, 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 the yeah, the, 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 
Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's that weird connection. The Connie Clark's Connie Clarksville on. on yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know. You're just asking about this sort of like us navigating these kind of dangerous uh, waters. And I don't really think it's that. I just it was just older. They were older than us, and we were so excited to be in the presence of these people. And you know, when I think about it, like with the exception of Stevens and all of our involvement with the, his his former the uh, the 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 woman he ended up having that relationship with uh we found our other teenage friends around that time so anything that was kind of that bad any kind of naughty behavior on our parts we didn't we didn't engage with with any adults they always hid everything from us mm. so it's like the people who are our age we we did all of our early drug experiments with you know the Houstons. you know they were my age jenna house and her brother steve and all of our friends who were, who were teenagers as well the people like the people like the black flags and all stuff. I don't recall that they never really took drugs around us. Or, yeah, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, they never smoked weed around us or any. Or people we, were getting wasted drunk, but we was, didn't. But yeah, we didn't know that they were, you know, doing cocaine and stuff until years later. They hid it from us. So, so it was, you know, we, we, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I think it's much worse going to Hollywood in the 80s as a as an early teen. It'd be much more dangerous. Well, it's interesting because when you read What We Do Is Secret, uh, that's the germs one, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, we got to do Trump. Yeah. What We Do Is Secret. There's a real darkness to a lot of the stuff in that. And actually, when Jane was on from the Go-Go's, her talking about the germs, she was not complimentary. She was specifically Darby being like, yeah, they weren't necessarily good people. And oh, they were just fucked up. You know, I don't think like someone like Pat, Pat, he is like one of the best people. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. There were like a little bit later. It just when people started doing heroin, that, that was like that was like started in like the earliest of 80s. And that kind of really infested the whole Hollywood scene. Then everything got really dark on for, for the first gen people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, uh, a lot of people fell into that and some of the teenagers fell into it too um but you know someone like darby i i didn't really know him so i just i just knew that he was just kind of like a troublemaker kind of funny you know a brat like a serious but i mean the jane that's interesting in jane's perspective because i mean darby was because i i read what we do is secrets i had never read it and i read it over um I read it over lockdown, actually. Um, and it was sort of like my 40th anniversary um, yeah. of that era. And so I was kind of taking an interest in, and in it's such a well-compiled oral history. Um, it really brought back a lot of memories of that exact time. And, um, and but I was hearing it from a different perspective because I was experiencing it uh, from this wide-eyed worship of worship worshipful um position of a of an, a 12 year old not really in the you know not in that circle just um admiring it and you know worshiping stupid you know druggy behavior not realizing that um you know not seeing it for what it was mm -hmm. you know but um you know, but I mean, I think Darby, like, yeah, Darby, the whole thing about Darby being like really into 
um, you know, studying, like they were in that school that was sort of um, Scientology. It was a special gifted class that was sponsored by the Scientologist. So it kind of was teaching them all these kind of like ways how to, to dominate your environment. Mind control. Yeah, how to dominate your environment through a psychological uh, tactic. Yeah, I, I yeah. saw that. The Darby, Darby wanted to use Scientology for evil. Yes. Well, you to get, he would, that was his view that he could have power over others if he um, followed these certain tenets that he was learning but in they always, school. But those guys would always like do that, mix that with a little Charles Manson. They weren't Scientologists. Yeah, mix or, it with Charles Manson, then, you know, equal doses of David Bowie. Well, and, a, and Charlie's roommate was one of the original uh, Scientologists when he was in prison the first time. Which one? Oh, one of his roommates in prison. Yeah, one of his roommates in prison was was like a Scientologist, an early early Scientologist, L. Ron yeah. Hubbard disciple. Yeah. Amazing, but so I could see Jane's perspective from being like, uh, you know, she probably thought they were mean to her. They're probably mean to her. Also, just like I'm not buying that shit. Fuck, fuck that dude. You know, mm. you know, because also he was all about like buy me a beer, buy me a beer, like I. You know the opposite sex to like you know to get get them to do things for him, and I could. See and why did he have like, a New York accent when he did that? He's yeah. so Southern California. <laughs> yeah, I could what? see that being like annoying, and um, yeah, and I don't know why he had that affectation, <laughs> but um, he's a bigger Ramones fan. It sounded and, like yeah, it's kind of like Johnny Thunders. Turn up the monitors. Yeah. <laughs> You know, they were also just super mischievous, you know, they were like the, um, Rats. the yeah, they were like, you know, whatever, the odd future of their era, mm. the, uh, you know, I don't know what terms to put it in, but, you know, like to create, you know, and purposely creating havoc, like, um, what's that guy that has that TV show now? Um, he's my kids into hey, it. Eric Andre. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Eric, Andre. Eric Andre kind of, in, you know, mentality. Yeah, well, that's very much was something like that. And, and Eric, you could, it could be viewed as political or whatever, but it's really, I don't know, it's kind of. It's funny because Eric Andre is like a punk rocker, former Matador intern. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, but he, he was like 100% like a guy that was into, you know, probably a Germs fan because I think that's, you know, yeah. like the. It's but amazing. Has he been on the show? No, he hasn't. I would love to have him on, but he has not yeah. been on at this point. So, but uh, he did Derek Beckles, who is one of the writers and producers of his show, is also one of the original Vice guys, too. Okay. So it's all very incestuously connected. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Well, my kid turned me on to Eric Andre. Um, I was. I think I turned Alfie onto Eric Andre. <laughs> and I, oh, I think, <laughs> I think Tommy Black did, actually. Uh, okay. Jack Black's kid. Um, but, uh, but it was funny because then I asked Jeff, like, do you know about this Eric Andre guy? Just like, oh, I've watched every episode multiple times. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's dialed I in. I forgot the movie. What's the movie called? The movie was really good. Um, I've never seen the movie. The one with Tiffany Haddish. It's it's kind of half, it's half um, improvised, but it has like a story, but it's, they do all the, oh, uh, wow. all of the pranks are like. Oh, I, I, great to know. I didn't even know it existed. It, it came it. out right when COVID started. I forget what it's called. It's like, whatever. It's interesting to like, look at this also as being like the post jackass era yeah. and generation jackass, where there's a group of kids that are watching jackass <laughs> too young. And yeah. now that's culture. Now that's art. Like I know a wrestler Darby Allen and his main influences is, is still like jackass. Right. right. Yeah, it yeah. makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. But I mean, and I just think that's 
I mean, to bring it back to the germs, I mean, I think that's that that's the easiest way to relate to it now, like where they were coming from. Because unfortunately, they got, you know, involved in drugs and mm-hmm. Darby turned out to be a drug addict. And, you know, a couple of them. What's that? A couple of the members of the germs. Yeah. And the, but then, but you know, but it's so it's. So ultimately, I still think that drugs are really the 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 culprit in terms of um, just good old fashioned addiction. Um, I mean, yeah, because if you listen to Forming and the first singles pre um, album, it is it has a very kind of um, like adolescent like joyfulness and it has like that prankster quality. It's just really fun and funny and great. And then the album is very dark. And the album is post heroin. Yeah, that's when people got people started getting into hard drugs and it made, you know, everything very dark, you know, because of those people. Actually, if you think about people like Pat and Darby, they're only a couple of years older than us. So they're between yeah. the ages of us and then the people who had graduated art school. All yeah, right, right. In so their own careers. So in between like the tomato duplenies and and, and the red us. crosses exist like the germs. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I'm sorry, just reading that book, I really... Uh, Lexicon Devil, I really identified with their their journey of being in Santa Monica and going to and discovering punk rock was a very they were only a couple of years ahead of us. Just the thing was, they were a couple of years ahead of us. And so they were interacting with like the runaways and stuff, which we were only at yeah, they were getting into they were into all the pre-punk stuff that we were into at the same time. And then they were going to those actual shows, which we didn't get to do. Well, because Pat seems like he winds up sticking around, like obviously you've talked about playing with Twisted Roots, which he played in, I think, early on. And then also you guys are in the Tater Tots with, with Pat, too. So it seems like he, you know, out of out of anyone kind of in the germs uh, becomes like kind of a fixture in in L.A. music scene, you know, working Every- at the SST store till the 90s. Everyone loved loves. Everyone loves Pat. And like and yeah, he was just like he he was he kind of was in all the weird scenes, the the punk rock and then the weird post-punk scene and then the bizarro Red Cross celebrity skin eras. You know, there's there. Um, yeah, he's just he was just someone who was always there. A musician, well, they, they, he were, you know, he famously worked at the SST Superstore on Sunset and then Pat also. And I, one of the funny stories that supposedly um, that Flea. When Pat was working at the SST Superstore, Flea hit him up and was like, "Hey, you know, and 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 it's the first time Frusciante leaves, so they're huge uh, at this point." And he's like, um, "Yeah, maybe you want to come down and jam with us." And uh, and Pat's like, "Oh, is that singer guy still in the band, <laughs> Anthony? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm gonna, I'm good. I'm gonna pass. What? I hate funk. Yeah." <laughs> But he did it. Yeah. He was an Amy Lorraine's fan. But just the idea that you know he's still scraping pennies together, yeah. working at the Greg Ginn. Um, uh, and it's just funny that he, um, you know, uh, took a pass on uh, something that would have been very financially lucrative. Um, well, it's like Brian been- Walsby and uh, Nirvana. Oh, was Brian Walsby in Nirvana? <laughs> Brian Walsby got the call from uh, Dale and Buzz before they called Dave, and they're like. <laughs> I've never to... heard that. Yeah, he talked when, about it on the show. When Walsby took a pass. Yeah, Walsby's like, oh, is that that band that did uh that he's like, Do you want to play in this band that I've been playing in? They need a new drummer. And he's like, Is it the band that did Bleach? And he goes, Yeah, he's like, God, oh, it wasn't that into that record. And he's like, Okay, we're gonna call someone else. And that's when they called Dave. 
Wow. 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 That I, you know, no one ever told me that. It's so crazy. I've, Speaking I've never... of Nirvana, I saw like I was watching YouTube and I, I think my very favorite Nirvana be and including all their records is the um there's a video of them playing in Chris Novoselic's mom's house. And it's and it's the original it's the original drummer, um, but it's just the three of them. And they're it and they're and it's kind of um and Kurt the whole time he's playing, he has his face to the wall. Like he had, like he is back his back to the band and his nose about an inch from the wall every single song. And it's the most genius because it reminds me of playing in our bedroom at home and hobby. Because <laughs> it's just like the same kind of house. And it's just like, you know, a lot of the familiar songs from that era, it's just it's the best. But yeah, he he in between songs, he he you know he interacts with the band. They talk and joke, and then when it's time to start singing again, he goes back to the wall and sticks his face, and it's great. That's a good effect. Like you don't have monitors, that I guess you're going to get your That's lyrics what I was back. Figuring, ah. I was thinking, oh yeah, he's, he's being antisocial, yes, but. I bet you it's the shitty, like having to use like a guitar amp for a PA, and he can. That's probably the only way he can hear himself yeah. sing. I bet you Buzz taught him that trick. Maybe, Maybe. but yeah, it's worth looking up. It's really good. Yeah, I'll ask him. Oh yeah, the singing into the wall thing. Oh yeah, that's what we used to have to do. <laughs> yeah, to come see the white person and show them how to sing in the wall. It's it's amazing when you think about Nirvana. Just basically, like they're it's kind of like a band that's put together by the Melvins. You know, like they were like they introduced uh chris and and kurt and then they i didn't know that those two were introduced by buzz or something well, they, or? they i guess uh chris was their friend first and he was like hanging out with them and then they met kurt and kind of like and i guess that's why they, the original band was called the klingons because they were always clinging on to the melvins so, so i should buzz, know these stories so, better so was buzz <laughs> um kim fally of the nirvana well, i think like a, a white magic version of kim fally <laughs> like <laughs> positive and not trying to hold on to the reins for the rest of their careers right right um that's so funny yeah the klingons yeah i didn't even know about the, uh, oh i think i know about the Kling is there's also did they they might have been a tape as the klingons they might have even put yeah, it like there, a there's a collaboration somewhere out there of buzz and klingons maybe i think there's a song there's a song that's co-written between these parties yeah, because I think they were all like, I think they were just like a hanger on type band, like like very much in the not hanger on, but like in the same way, like you guys were for Black Flag. Black Flag, yeah, yeah. we were like the, but but we were like the mascot. I, mean, I understand yeah. that Klingons officially are a race of of, <laughs> of humanoid life force, but but it also it also just seems like clinging on. Yeah, they're just. Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> what did Captain was... Kirk and Toilet Paper have in common? They're funny yeah. Klingons around your anus. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I have kept you guys for a very long time, and if you guys got to go, I totally get it. Uh, well, Jeff's got to check. <laughs> he just left. He just walked out of the room. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is amazing! Yeah, and I can cut out this part too and edit it. Obviously, yeah, so. whatever. <laughs> we're we're writing right now. Actually, when we're done with this, we're gonna um we're trying to write a Red Cross record right now. Oh, amazing! I, Red Cross is like one of the few bands that's never put out a bad record and that's, ah, well, that's very nice of you to say well hopefully we we hopefully we keep that track record guys top, hopefully we top that with the next one well yeah. i think that's the thing is none of your records sound the same but there's always like it's always you guys you know and i think there's few bands that can like boast that they've never put out a bad record especially surviving so many at times down periods in music like los angeles right. music specifically 
Like, it's easier to be. It's easier to be an island with a partner, you know, yeah. like a family member. I think if you're by yourself in a group, um, it's it, yeah. It's I, I can imagine that'd be difficult to kind of weather those storms. Well, I think that's the thing. It's it's so you know idealized for people that have siblings is the idea of having a creative partnership that spans this well, many years, right? Like a, a lifetime spent making art together. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's kind of like, uh, I don't know, as I, <laughs> my brother and I, I guess our, our Bush League version of that is doing a podcast together. That's <laughs> great. Cool. That's great. And <laughs> see, and does he have a title? Is he like CEO of the podcast? I it, Now he, he was guest booker and now I just named him show producer because there's a lot of times where I'm like, I'm just going to stop doing it. It costs me money. Like, what am I doing this for? And he'll well, be like, yeah, no, we got to keep going. Let's see that's that. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's, that's like great. Yeah, that's true. Because that's kind of our our songwriting right now. It's kind of like being like we're kind of cheerleading each other on, you know. And that's that is a nice thing about uh, that's what the partnerships should that when they're working best. That's what was the deal with Anarchy Six? Oh yeah, well that was for um, the second Love Dolls movie, and um, my character arc was that uh, I was like a hippie kid. Um, and we were referencing Billy Jack movie and I was, I lived at a freedom school and then I came to the big scary city, like very welcome to the jungle. So you were punk first, right? You no, were... I became punk. Well, in the first movie, my twin brother is murdered by the love dolls. Yeah. That's it. Johnny Tremaine. And, but he's like a Kim Fowley, like, a, you know, uh show business, um, you know, abusing his um, sleaze bucket. Yeah, sleaze bucket. The, the making uh, abusing his and this pre um, me too. And they just they exact their revenge by slipping me acid, and I kill myself on accident. And then um, in the second film, I my character is resurrected as the twin brother, the hippie twin brother. And then during my story arc, and the second one is that I become disaffected in the you know in the city by um all of the um the hate that the world is teaching me and i make this transformation in from hippie to hardcore punk rocker and i go from rainbow tremaine to chemical warfare lead singer of um of anarchy six so but that's know, the, but the thing six. about the recording of the record is is interesting well, I've Anarchy Six, and then so we did the one song, Slam Spit, Cut Your Hair, Kill Your Mom. And that was just for the movie. And then um, and then that existed. And once that existed, then the 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 late great Bill Bartell, Pat Fear of of White Flag and Gasatanka Records, he wasn't gonna leave that um just sitting. So I think Pat and he Bill, signed you guys. Bill along with the bandmates in Anarchy Six, who were the then defunct Sin Thirty Four hardcore band. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so they just sort of stoked those calls. Uh, I mean, uh, Bill stoked those fires for and and Dave Markey and Phil Newman to to expand on this Anarchy Six idea and put a whole album together. But I mean, you, that's all that I really remember. But, but I, well, no, what I like the best is you guys wrote and recorded the album in one day. Okay. So, so we, that whole album was written and recorded in one day. Yeah. So I, which I said, which means I, that's the most exciting. Thing yeah. So I don't really remember. And, well, I think you produce it, right, Jeff? 
No, I, no. Were no, you present? You have a credit on it. I'm present on that. No. You have a credit, I think, on that record. Oh, I might have a credit. I might have um, executive producer. Oh, maybe. <laughs> Wait, did you write any lyrics? My, my, old you guys punks? wrote and recorded the whole thing in one day, and um, it doesn't. It's it sounds like a real album. Yeah, right. It's, it stands the test of time. I have to take a listen. Um, yes, yeah, remember there was a song about old punks. <laughs> old punks hit the mask. Like where we were like downing, we're like down on the, uh, you know, the first generation of LA punk rockers because um, somehow we thought they weren't cool. Um, it's great. I love that record. It rips. I'm gonna yeah. have to listen to it. Again. I have to, yeah, I have to, I have to, yeah. I know we did one performance. And you did I, a couple. You did the Anti Club, which was in really. In some great. way, my memory is that maybe Henry Rollins was in the crowd. I don't remember. What did you think when you saw, like, because you got to see all the Black Flag singers? Like, who was your favorite era? Like, uh, is it Keith? Well, I mean, yeah, well, Keith was, the, um, he was the one that we grew up with. I mean, it was the first one that we saw. And then. But they the stole second, your guitar player, right? So. Well, but we loved, I mean, you know, the Nervous Breakdown EP is a classic. And um, and everything went black. All those Keith versions of those songs is what we were used to. We were kind of spoiled from the well, get-go. And then their next singer was Ron Reyes, who now we're all friends with and we love. And We had beef with him at the time. But at that time, we had beef with Ron because he left the band in such a shitty way mm -hmm. and, and was real bitchy about us at, on his way out the door. So when he reemerged like the following week as, a, as the new lead singer of Black Flag, we thought he was a you know a joke, and um, so we were thumbs down on him. Even though they made the brilliant Jealous Again record at that period, we already knew all those songs when Keith did that. Yeah, we knew the Keith versions, you know, the, the Everything Went Black version, and then um, uh, and then soon after was Des, which we loved, and but Des had been in our band, yeah, we too. Were... So there was also a little bit like, what's the deal here? <laughs> he was in like... the teens from our peer group when we. You know, and Des had played second guitar in our brief, brief lived five piece version before I went to Las Vegas. Um, so before I ran away, and um, so that brief period where we reemerged, um, uh, in you know, whatever in 1980, and um, and so then he was singing during the Louis Louis period, and that was good, but um, Black Flag also had like that was right at the time when Black Flag had suddenly exploded as the focal point of this new hardcore movement that we felt very disaffected by. Like we were bummed that kids our age were now going to shows. We were no longer um, just had this little secret world of weirdos and misfits that we got to be a part of away from our own peer group. And now the, our peer group were shy. So we didn't get along with kids our age in our high school. And now we were having to deal with kids our age at shows that we also didn't get along with because they were taking this idea of the punk rock thing and they were kind of, we thought they were just kind of mimicking what, you know, they were like, they were learning about punk rock from things like Quincy MD, the TV show. And, um, that was our take on it. We were cooler than them. We thought like, oh yeah, they're like chips punk rock. And, you know, they just saw on chips that you go to these shows and you beat each other up and you don't care about the music and all you want to do is spit on people. And, um, and so we were really bummed. We're like, this is jock mentality that we don't groove with at school is now 
um, is that is is in our little sacred space, and it just happened to be Black Flag were the ultimate pinnacle group of that world at that moment. So, you know, we were destined to hate all of it. You know, we felt <laughs> like all of it had been spoiled and ruined, and uh, so yeah. And then and then Des quit, and then Des no, and then Des changed. And he got the long hair and you know, he got groovier and he does stay true to himself. And then, um, and then they got that new guy and the new guy um, was just, where are you going? Sit down stay with us. Why do you keep moving? I was like, so distracting. Um, but then, so Rollins, yeah. Okay. Look, he's a really nice guy and he's always supportive of Red Cross and he plays our records on his radio shows. And, and stuff. my war was great. But at the time, we thought this guy who's showing up to Black Flag, now he's in the band, and he looks like the poster boy of all the shit we hated about what had happened to our scene. Just like with the Circle Jerks, we hated that skank kid that's their, that was their 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 um, their logo mm -hmm. and the moniker. Like, that was the exact thing that we didn't identify with and that's what was selling so big and that was that was the target demographic and that's what we felt so alienated from that was the exact sort of to generalize to intensely generalize to say that's what we felt so alienated from and so we didn't like when Rollins joined the band and we probably were acting like Eric Andre and making, making goofy, saying mischievously goofy, annoying things about him. And, um, until my war until my war. Sure. And then like, yeah, they earned they our, become like an art rock band. Yeah. 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 And, but, but I mean, we're always, like, we're always too cool for school. Like we saw, um, we saw, um, I was reminded recently um, of seeing um, the birthday party. Or no, it was um, Nick Cave and the Bad Seas open for the Cramps in 1981. And um, and we loved the Cramps. And we even, we loved, we loved no, we loved um, no wave music too. We liked Art Damage. We were into Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. We used to cover Orphans off that first Teenage Jesus album in 1980. I just was on, um, Lydia Lunch's podcast, and I told her about that. She didn't know, but um, <laughs> anyway, but um, but I remember when we saw the bad seeds. Even then, we were like super, you know, um, uh, you know, too cool for school, and we were heckling them, and we were <laughs> we were heckling, and we were we were shouting Black Oak Arkansas song titles at them. It was like, go Jim Dandy. Yeah, go Jim Dandy. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, like, what's the exact opposite of what this music is trying to be? This music's taking itself very, very seriously. And it's very uh, dark. And, and, and we were yelling, you know, song titles from a Southern fried rock band. Um, just to be assholes. I don't know. But, um, you know, so anyway, I just say that saying like, when you ask what we thought of these singers of Black Flag, you also have to take into account that we were too cool for our own good. So you're saying Mike Vallely is what you're getting at? Yeah. Or Humpty's <laughs> Mike Vallely is my favorite singer of Black Flag. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I forgot there was a new one too. But so yeah, so it was always Keith was then. Then, but then, um, but then I guess it would be Des would be number two, and yeah. So that's that's. There was a very long involved answer. I'm sorry, you need to go to the bathroom. No, I'm well, I gotta say, this has been amazing. 
and I would love to continue punishing you guys forever. And I still have like sheets of questions I didn't get to about Vox records and we'll do part, <laughs> let's do part three. We we'll just do it every season, like every time you're day, every every. I, um, do you do seasons of your? Um... No, I do it all the time. But I will. You guys can have like a regular monthly spot if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're thinking about going down the Greg Shaw rabbit hole, yeah, then let's do that in the next version. That'd be great. Uh, just, I would love that. Its own show. Yeah, because I mean that's all punk of another. Um, yeah, that's a whole new world. Yeah, another another facet of punk. Well, anytime you guys want to talk about any facet of punk, and I cannot <laughs> wait for the new record. You know the door is always. Uh, thanks. Thank you. Um, do you have any song titles for us just off the top of your head? Just uh, off air, I'll give you all the dirty ones. <laughs>